We're going to be looking at a passage. Today, we're actually double dipping. We're two rabbit trails in one day. You get two for the price of one, you are welcome, okay? Um, we're going to be looking at this because it's, it's triggered me. I was, I was thinking as we were looking at, at John, and John the Baptist came, and what did he do? He preached repentance, right? And then Jesus started teaching, and he's, he's telling people how they have to change, how they have to change, which he's teaching repentance. And so I thought maybe we should stop for a Sunday, and let's just look at repentance. Let's look at a biblical example of repentance. Let's analyze it, and let's get practical about it so that it's something we can kind of get a hold of and think about. Uh, and, and this is great because if, if you've walked in here today and you've never been in a church in 30 years, this is something good for you to hear. And if you've walked in today and you've been going to church for 40 or 50 years, this is good for you to hear today. This is good for all of us. It's good for me, all right? So let me read to you. I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. And uh, you can get there. It's not going to be on the screens, or you can just listen. Uh, A good thing to learn to do. Listen. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, now Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians, he broke bad on them some. He kind of got in their faces and gave them a kick in the rear. And so he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So Jesus talks about repentance. John talks about repentance. Paul now is talking about repentance. Let's wrestle with that word and kind of get an idea of of what's going on. First of all, here's just a map of the Mediterranean, just so you can see where Corinth is. Now, this is important for one reason. It's because if you look, above Corinth is Europe. To the right of Corinth, yeah, is Asia. Directly below or south of Corinth is uh, Africa. And this is the Mediterranean Sea. Most of the trade of the whole world at that time moved through that sea. And if you look at Corinth, <clears throat> you can come from Asia and you can dock almost at Corinth and unload your goods. And if you're coming from Italy and other parts of Europe, you come in just below that word Achaia where there's, you can see there's like a bay and you can dock at Corinth. Corinth was one of the most unique crossroads of the world because Main roads left it heading north up into Greece, and ships could come from either direction and have a safe harbor and a relatively safe trip. Now, if you remember back then, people thought the deepest parts of water were evil. That's where, that's where the devil, that's where evil spirits, that's where Satan lived. And so they hated to go straight across. They would often go around the edges, staying just a ways off of land, so they felt like they were safer. And Corinth gives them a place where they can be surrounded by land, and they feel very safe when they're docking and unloading. And so Corinth became like the crossroads of the world. It was incredibly rich. It had people. You would see if any, anything was kind of a hybrid of the whole world, it was Corinth. There would be people from all over the world in Corinth because this is where everything happened. And Corinth 
became known. In fact, they had a sign right outside of Corinth that said that. Welcome to fabulous Sin City, Corinth, right? And that's, that is basically true. Corinth was known. In fact, a slur that people would say back then for someone who they just thought was evil or weird or crazy, they'd go, you're a Corinthian. They would call them a Corinthian because that's what the world thought of Corinth. It was so bad. So a church gets planted in Corinth. And what kind of people go to that church? Corinthians. Wild, crazy people mixed up, got terrible ideas, all this kind of stuff. Just, I'm looking at that thinking, what a cool church. They're right on the front lines. If you have a church, man, if you have a church that never has any problems with anybody, get out. You need people. You need diversity. You need young. You need people who are young in their faith and old in their faith. You need people that annoy you because they help you grow. I don't want to be the pastor of a church where everybody's like me. That would drive me crazy, right? And so Corinth is this church, and it's growing, and it's seeing this. It's it's incredible, and it's got tremendous problems. Paul writes about the problems. He blasts them. He puts them on blast, right? He writes, but he doesn't ghost them. He comes right back with this letter, and he writes about these problems in the first letter. In the second letter, he's telling them, man, you guys, you figured out what repentance is. This is really great. So let's figure out what repentance is. Practical ideas. The key to growth is repentance. That is going to be the key to growth in your life for the rest of your life. The key to growth is repentance. Now, in verse Let's see here. Here it goes. There's verse. Yes, come on, verse 8. There, verse 6. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. You know, when Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses, um, to the church door, and I know most of you probably have those memorized when you were doing grammar school or something like that, but one of the things he said was, all of life is repentance. And I thought about that, all of life is repentance, because repentance can be really misunderstood, because the average person, maybe even the average Christian, thinks that repentance is something you do for the really bad stuff you do, the major things. But Luther's saying, no, 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 we should be growing. It's a daily cycle of life, moving from repentance to faith. But we think, yeah, it's for the bad stuff. I'm a pretty good person. I do fairly well on my walk. I, I mean, I'm like, I'm like four out of seven this week in devotions in the morning. So I'm, I'm for a baseball player, I'm, I'm killing it, right? And I did something bad a while back, but I repented from it. And uh, I, I knew I'd blown it, and I needed to confess it to God, so I did. But see, if you understand the gospel that Jesus Christ, if you understand that he has covered your sins, then you need, this is something we need to think about on a daily basis, accepting on a daily basis, in a sense, what he's done for us, thinking it through so that we understand more and more what the gospel tells us. Because when we do, then we understand our sin and we repent more deeply, we repent more. And this releases joy and love in our life. So let me talk about this, because this is what we would call walking in the light. When Jesus said he is the light, and we're supposed to walk in it. And and in 1 John, he repeats that idea. 
We need to understand that's what it is. But here's the thing. If you don't rest your life on the gospel, it's not something that's first and foremost in your mind. Maybe, maybe you're just a very moral, religious person. Maybe you're a good person. Maybe you're an atheist. If you don't rest your life on the gospel, then you're all in the same, all those people are in the same boat. Because what are they doing? They're resting their life on their own power and ability. That's what's happening. And then what happens? When you rest your life on your own power and your own ability, you see your sin. You see your weaknesses. And what does it do? It leads to despair. I can't do it. I keep failing. How many of have ever said that? How many of us have ever said that? I keep failing. I feel like it's hopeless. I'll never get over this. See, repentance in the life in, in the light of the gospel is reassuring. It's joyful. It leads to gratitude for what is God, God has done for us. It does not lead to despair. Repentance does not lead to despair. And too many times, as we struggle in our lives, it leads us to despair. And that's not what God wants in your life. That's not what his plan is for your life. Repentance is, is the engine that brings growth. Not getting better at resisting its sin. No, getting better at bringing everything to the cross. The focus is the cross. Repentance is identifying and removing the idols of the heart. We tend to just focus on our sin and we beat ourselves up. If your awareness of your sin leads you to despair, then you have to ask yourself, on what basis does God love me? Is it my efforts? Is it my moral excellence? Is it living up to some standards? He says, Paul, and Paul is teaching us this, and here we're seeing repentance does not crush us. It lifts us up. It's identifying and removing the idols of the heart. Why? What do I think this sin will give me? Let's look at the second one. The key to repentance is identifying the core issues, the idols of the heart. He told them in, in, in the second half of, of verse 9, he says, For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So he said that you became sorrowful as God intended. This, this is this idea, I think, of identifying what are the core issues here? What are the idols? I sin. I confess it to God. But what's the next step? The next step is, why did I feel the need to do that? You find yourself in a tough situation, and suddenly you're faced with a choice. I can lie to mitigate this issue, or I can just own up, and this is going to be hard, right? And so what happens sometimes? We lie to try to just mitigate the issue, make it not so bad. And then we think, I lied. God, please forgive me for lying. That was wrong. Okay, but why did I lie? What caused me to do that? What did I think I was going to lose or gain? What was the motivation behind it? This is very important for us because this is what is involved in repentance. As we begin to understand what it is, the idol that's behind it. An idol is something you get your identity from. So I lied. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want somebody to think less of me. Ah, okay. So now we're beginning to figure out what's behind it. 
My image is behind it. I don't want them to think less of me. I mean, like, who wants to be known as a liar? Nobody. And so an idol is something you get your identity from. I mean, I've, yeah, this is my go-to, Rocky, the first Rocky movie. Great theological treaties. His girlfriend says, why are you going to do this? He's going to kill you in that ring. He's going to kill you. And he says, if I can just go the distance. He's not even thinking of winning. If I can just go the distance, I will know I'm not a bum. We can all struggle with this, right? If I could just do that, I know I'll know I'm not a bum. I'll be happy. I'll be content. See, that was Rocky's bar. Just make it through the fight alive and be standing at the 15th round. Then I'm somebody. We all have those things in our lives. Those things that, ah, oh, if I could do that, then people would think more of me. I'd show them they were wrong about me. We'll be happy. We'll be content. We'll have something. I mean, I, here we go. I'm willing. Here's the ugliness in me. Sometimes I listen to other pastors. I'll listen to them online, things like that. And I got to be honest with you. They suck. I'm just like, are you kidding me? That's your illustration? That was so lame. Did you notice no one laughed? That was terrible. I'm so much better. You've been... You know, like you've invented the cure for insomnia with that sermon. I'm so much better than, I'm telling you, I'm so much better than they are. But I'm not taking this all on myself. We all have that kind of a thing. We all have that. We all have that thing where, I mean, who, who's, who goes around, you know, they say, well, you know, how are you doing? Hey, I'm just doing what I always do, mediocre. Mediocre work, mediocre husband, mediocre father. Just mediocre. That's me. Happy to be there, right? Nobody says that. You may be mediocre, but nobody wants to admit it. People always say, they, or no, we don't say it, do we? We think it. Man, if things had just broke a little different for me, I could have been really, really good at that. You know, if things had broken just a little different for me, I'd be in the NFL today. Right? Well, you know I'm not talking about me now, right? You know, I'm not, they're like, uh, no. You know, if things, I would be, if things had broken just a little different, you know, if I'd have just had an extra break, or if I'd had a little more money, or if I'd had this, or if I'd had that, if things had, I'd be, I'd be somebody. Whatever somebody is to you, it does, it's all different for all of us, right? It's all different for all of us what somebody is. It doesn't have to be a star or, fa- you know, it's just I, I would be somebody at something. And so idols, idols are easy to have. An idol might be a relationship, it might be financial, it might be achievement, it might be status. But it's making something other than Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. The Lord of your life. And you you can usually tell. Here's how you tell. You have a problem in your life and you don't get what you want. And when you can't get what you want or what you think you deserve or whatever it is, you're beginning to get a glimpse at an idol because it's something you think you have to have. I have to have it. Why can't I have this? I always tell people that's how you can tell when you're irritated or if you're irritated or you're angry or you're upset about something, you always know it's because you're not getting something that you want or you think you deserve. That's it. 
when, um, when I was working with youth one day, I had a tough day. I knew I was going to have a tough day because we'd had some teens get in trouble and the parents had all made appointments with me. And I just want to be a, parents of little kids and parents of teens. Every parent always told me, I want to know the truth about my kid. I know my kid's not an angel, but it's those other kids they run around with. They're bad influences. And I tell them, that's what every other parent is saying about your kid right now. It's that kid, it's that kid, right? So I knew I had these these, uh, difficult meetings, rough meetings, right? And the whole day, I was just sitting there thinking, I can't wait to go home. I can't wait to go home. I'm going to go home. And I'm going to have these little kids run up to me, and they're going to hug me at daddy's home. I'm going to get on the floor and wrestle with, wrestle with my kids, and my wife's going to come over, and we're going to kiss and hug, and the kids are all going to go, yuck. And then we're going to have dinner, and we're going to be like the perfect Christian family. We're going to sit around the table, and I'm going to say, who wants to pray? And they're all going to raise their hands instead of me doing it every time, you know, and, and it's just going to be great. So the whole day, I'm looking forward to that, right? So I last difficult thing ends, I go home, I pull into the driveway, and my wife is on the porch. And I'm like, better than I imagined. This is going to get good, right? Ah, this is great. I walk up, and she says, give me the keys. I said, oh, okay, sure. Where are you going? I don't know. And she starts getting in the car. I said, when are you coming back? I don't know. And she drives away. Right? Someone ruined my day. The wrath of Bob, you know, the everlasting smite will smite thee. I walk in the door, and it, I, the kids already knew. I mean, it's like a lineup. They're standing in the living room. And I said, what did you do to your mother? You know, I'm, what did you do to your mother? And that's what I, I, was, I was like, I stopped for a second. You know, those times, parents, where you go, I'm not in total control. So I do not do anything at this moment because I might do something I really regret. So I said, go to your rooms, you know, and they ran to their rooms crying, except for Derek, the oldest. He was like, mm, you know, that kind of a thing. So I thought, the, the guilty one. <laughs> I already know. But I just stopped and I thought, why? All of a sudden, I got so angry. So angry. Why? I didn't get what I wanted. I deserved. I deserved hugs and kisses and happiness and a good Christian family and a wife who will hug and kiss. I deserve that. That's what I deserve. And I looked forward to it all day, and it was gone. Idols reveal themselves in difficult times because they show us what we're trusting. They show us what we think is the most important thing. I got to be honest, through the day, I kept thinking about wanting to be done instead of thinking about sometimes these are hurting families that are going through difficult times. I've got to work with them on this. They need help. And I did work with them. They did get help. I mean, but I realized serving the Lord was not my number one goal. Getting through it and getting home was. And that was an idol. That was an idol. They reveal themselves when times are tough. And this is kind of the psychological aspect of idolatry. But I wanted to also delve into the theological aspect, obviously, because these are the things that you are making your righteousness with, these idols. 
God is saying you're, you're, you're trying to make your own righteousness. And that's just not going to work. Paul was, knew this perfectly. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm just going to read it to you. Paul says, if any, anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in their own ability, Paul says, I have more. He goes, step up. I'll, 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 I'll outdo every one of you. He says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact right day, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And the Hebrew of Hebrews is, is a title. He's a, like a, he was like a Pharisee. He was, he was one of the elites. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things were in the way of getting to Christ. They were worthless. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And that's that nice, polite word for poo-poo. I consider them, which is also a nice, polite word for something, right? It's the word our children were allowed to use, right? I consider them dung that I may gain Christ. He considers, he considers everything that he had to his name as an elite Jew. He said, it was unclean to getting to Jesus. It kept me from him. It didn't draw me to him. So he, he, he says, he lists his righteousness, he lists his pedigree, he lists his family background, his career accomplishments, his intellectual attainments, all those things. He says, worthless, more, more than worthless. He says, they're, they're like unclean, they're disgusting. They used to be my honor and my glory and my dignity, and now they're just rubbish. So when we become a Christian, you know, we say, I know this, I know this about me, I understand, I'm a child of God, but, but our old nature is still hanging in there. And, and I know that Jesus is my righteousness. I know that Jesus, he's my glory. He's all I need. But the old man says, are you kidding? Right? Are you kidding? That's great spiritual news, but does that work in the real world? I was talking to a, a person years ago, struggling with relationships, couldn't, couldn't get a date, awkward around people, and I was gently reminding this person, you're completely loved. You're completely loved. You have an incredible future. You have blessings now and blessings in the future. You have guidance that God gives you. You have a pardon that God has given you. You have so much that God has done for you. I know this is hard, but you have so much that God has done for you. And, and he said this, he said, but what good is all that if you're not popular? And then he realized you should not say that to a minister because you wanted to light into him. But see, here's the thing. If your idol is being well-liked and accepted, then being adopted by God isn't necessarily great news because you need, I want people to accept me. I want people to like me. That's the idol. And that's us. Now, it may not be as simple as that. We all have idols. They're just in different areas for different people. But we can all struggle with a common temptation. If I don't get that, I'm a bum. If I don't do that, I'm a loser. And then what happens? We're operating on the righteousness that we generate. We're still operating at least somewhat on the old basis before Christ. And so we need to identify those things. We need to deal with them biblically. We need to think about things like, what do I daydream about? How's my imagination engaged a lot of the time? 
Where does my money go? That's a great way. What am I really trusting? Do I have uncontrolled emotions that I do not control? Those are signs. Is there anxiety? Is there depression? Is there, am I angry a lot? That type of thing where it's just out of control. Looking at ourselves and evaluating ourselves is a part of repentance. Because we still have that in us that we want to get glory and make our own righteousness. We talked about this. We talked about this just recently, the whole idea that men are people, human beings are glory grabbers. We lost our glory and we're always grabbing for it. And Jesus showed us the perfect example. He gave up glory to come to earth for us so that we would get what? His glory. His glory. But we have a flesh that still wants to make its own righteousness. And the only way to grow is to recognize how this happens in us and repent of it every day when we see pride or selfishness or gossip or, we, or we're quick to defend ourselves all the time. And, and, you know, you may say, well, I don't understand how this works. How do I do that? Well, let me get, just, here's a little test, just this week. This week, don't gossip. Try not to talk bad about anyone else. Public figures, people you know, people you don't like. Don't talk bad about anyone, even if it's true. Don't talk bad about anyone this week. Try to do that. Second thing, don't defend yourself this week. Somebody says something, just I'm not going to defend myself. It's okay. I'm not going to. I'm just not going to. Third thing, don't brag this week. Don't, don't talk about something where you go, well, you know, <laughs> I guess it's good. Yeah. Yeah. I studied hard. That's why. You know, don't brag about yourself this week. Try and do that, and you will be astounded at how many times you gossip and defend yourself and brag. If you, if you think about it, you'll see it, and you'll be amazed, and you, <laughs> you get depressed. You'll, oh, but it, no, it won't lead to despair. Or do something for someone else. And don't let them know you did it. Oh, that's so hard. When you care about somebody, when you're trying to impress somebody, when you love somebody, that can be really hard. Husbands, do something for your wife and don't even acknowledge it. Wives, do something for your husband and don't even acknowledge it. I did something the other day, and it just killed me. It killed me. I unloaded the dishwasher. She was saying she was going to unload the dishwasher when she got home. And, and I thought, P-O, I'm going to unload the dishwasher. She's going to be so surprised. It's like, you are a worthwhile person, right? And so I unloaded the dishwasher. She comes in and said, well, what'd you do? Well, I did something, but it's something you wouldn't notice. <laughs> and so then it's like, well, what did you do? I'm uh, you'll see. You'll see that it hit me. She won't see. I don't know if she'll see. <laughs> I don't know. She'll think she did it, maybe. So I said, ah, I, I just unloaded the dishwasher for you. And I said, ah, oh, thanks. That's great. Thank you. Then <laughs> I just thought, that was worthless. There you go. There you go. Uh, just all about me, right? Just all about me. That's what we do. Try this week. Try to see that in your life. Try to see, not to depress you, but just to go, God, there's lots I need to work on. I want to repent of that. I want to repent of that. And then move on, because it's gone. And move on. All right? So, real quick, how to repent? He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's what we need. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's what we don't need. Right? I want no regrets. No shame. So, 
First thing, just, to, just as you think about this, don't be discouraged when you realize, if you try to do this for a week, don't be discouraged when you realize how bad things are. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, in a war, knowing the enemy's movement. You may lose a battle on any given day, but if you know where they're at, you've got a good chance of winning the whole thing. So if you know you're struggling with something, like if you know I'm a controller, I struggle with that. I'm too sensitive. I get hurt too easy. I'm struggling with that. I see how my, I see how I, my pride is shaped. I, I, I always want to be right. I want to have the last word. I want to dominate people. Or maybe, maybe you're kind of one of those, you say nothing because you don't ever want to offend anybody. You don't want to go through that process of having to deal with heart issues, so you just ignore them. Wow, people are smiling right now. Wow, okay. Wink, hitting the nail on the head. All right. You say you save yourself hurt by saying nothing? Think about that. It's still all about you. It's still all about you. That's what's going on there. It's still a form of pride. Because what? If I don't want, if I don't want to offend anybody or hurt anybody or have to deal with any of these hard issues, it's because I'm self-centered. I'm thinking about me and saving myself the hard work of actually doing relationships the way they're supposed to be done. And when you see how it attacks and works in you, that's, it can't ambush you in the same way it used to. So if someone says to me, you know, you know, like at the end of a week of trying to do this, someone says, wow, bah, man, I see all my bad motives. I'm so frustrated. And I would say, hey, hey, it doesn't have you totally because you can see it. The worst thing is to not be able to see it in you because then it's got you. It's got you. The battle is engaged, and that's good. And the most important part of it is that you have awakened to it. You see it. You realize there's a battle. You feel the battle. That's a sign of life. That's a sign that God's at work in your life. So don't, don't, don't be discouraged when you realize how bad things are. Another thing to think about is we're talking about godly sorrow for sin, not worldly sorrow. There's a difference, all right? So first, we unmask it. We see what it is. We don't use nice names, you know. If you say, oh, well, my feelings get hurt easily. Well, maybe what it is is you're a bitter person. Think about that. You think, if you say, well, there's this thing going on, and I'm really deeply concerned about it. Maybe what it is, though, is this is anxiety. You're struggling. You're eating up with anxiety. And what does that mean? You're not trusting God in this situation. See, call it for what it is. And worldly sorrow is this. Worldly sorrow is the idea of thinking of the danger of it. We all know this. Listen, anybody that's had kids has had this illustrated thousands of times, right? Your kid does something. You say, did you do that? No, you did. I saw. We have cameras in the house, whatever. I'm sorry. What? Why is he sorry? Because they got caught. That's why. I got caught. I'm sorry. They don't say that to you. I'm so sorry I did it. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I I offended you or hurt you. No, my kids never said offended to me. Right. But they're sorry because they got caught. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. But see, how does it work with us? Worldly sorrow is when we go, oh, this is going to mess up my life. Oh, this is going to cause pain for me. And that's not not repentance. That's self-pity. It's very different. Because if I realize that much of what I'm doing 
I mean, I, God shows me at times. Many times when I think I'm repenting, it's just me be exercising self-pity. And self-pity is thinking about what a mess I've gotten into. Self-pity focuses on the consequences of the sin. What a wreck I am. The consequences of the sin for me. What a wreck I am. God is going to get me for this. My parents are going to get me for this. My boss is going to get me for this. What am I going to lose here? Lord, I'm so sorry I did that. Help me get out of this. See, what happens is then I hate the consequences of the sin, but I haven't learned to hate the sin. I hate myself for being so stupid. You ever struggle with that? You do something, you repent, you do something, you repent, you do it again, and you go, why do I keep, I'm so stupid. I hate myself, right? What is that looking at? Consequences, it's self-pity. And it just allows the sin to continue to have control. But what is godly sorrow? What is real repentance? It looks at how it affects God. What does this cost God? You ever think about that? Do something wrong and you're confessing it and realizing this sin is like a nail in Jesus' hand. It's one more thing he had to endure for me. Understanding this, this affects him. He paid for that sin. How does he feel about it? And that's what we do. We unmask the sin and we take it to the cross. Because what we've seen is, we see that oftentimes our sin becomes more important to us than God in our life. And he died me to free me from, he died for me to free me from this. And yes, you can feel bad. I don't want to minimize the fact that there is a sorrow because he says there is a godly sorrow. There is a God, but it's not a pathological hatred of me because he loves me. And when I confess it, he removes it like it never happened. Think about that. That's an awesome thought. You talk about something that leads to joy and to freedom. When sin is confessed, he puts it, He tells us he puts it in a place where it will be remembered no more. I can remember as a little kid getting in trouble a number of times at school and my dad saying, I feel like I always share bad things about my dad. My dad's a great guy and I love him, but you see sometimes we're all human. And my dad said, this is like the seventh time you've done this. This is the sixth time you've done this. When are you going to get this right? I'm sorry, Dad. I know, but you said that six other times. What's happening there? He kept kept score. He keeps score. We struggle with that as human beings. God doesn't struggle with that. He doesn't keep score. It's gone. So you come to him. Say, God, I know this is like the sixth time. And God goes, first for me. It's the first time for me. Because I don't remember anything about this. He doesn't remember it. It's put in a place where it would be remembered no more. And you can say, wow, well, that's a free pass. Yes, it is. And it is awesome. And it is awesome. We have to remind ourselves of this. Why? Because when you begin to grasp what salvation is, how sin is forgiven, it doesn't make you want to sin more. It makes you want to sin less. It makes you want to love him more because he shows this great love for us 
in spite, in spite of our failures. We said it last week, you know, this concept that God knows every bit of you intimately, which could be so discouraging, except that he loves you unconditionally, which is so encouraging, so uplifting. It reminds me, I was thinking of this, um, uh, one of the Psalms that um, got made into a song and almost destroyed the power of the psalm. But uh, you are my hiding place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. And that word hiding place isn't a place where we go hide, like hide and go seek. Hiding place is a safe place. God, you're my safe place. You're my safe place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust you. I will trust you. It reminds me of the things that I can, I can find safety in that are apart from God, and I don't want that anymore. Because I can look at those things and say, this is not worth Jesus to me. This is not more important than Jesus to me. So I confess it, and I drop it. I put it to, fa- put it to, put it to death. Uh, let me just say real quick here. Repentance yields fruit. In verse 11, he says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself? He says, you you wanted to make it right. You admitted it was sin, and you moved on. The eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, what alarm. This idea of, oh, man, what are we doing? This is sin. What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done at every point. You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And it's this idea, it's this idea not of that you were accused of a crime and you're innocent. It's this idea that you have, you have taken care of this. You're free of it. You're innocent of it now. It's not a part of you anymore. Repentance yields fruit. When we begin to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ means for us in our daily life, when we try to walk in the light so that on a daily basis we are aware And the thing is, if you walk in the light on a daily basis, you will be more aware of your shortcomings. And that is a blessed thing because then you deal with it. Light exposes. Light helps us live. It shows us reality. That's the beauty of light. And in doing that, we become more and more like Jesus. I shared a story a number of years ago of picking up somebody and helping somebody out. I feel like I've told you all these things I did wrong, so every once in a while I need to encourage you that I actually get things right occasionally. And I'd help this person, and it turned out to be more than I expected and very difficult. And finally, when this person, when we parted, I got getting out of my car, we'd done a few things, these things, this person looked at me and said, thank you, Jesus, and closed the door and walked away. And I started crying. I started because because at times when it was hard working with this person and they had some issues that were huge issues, it was dis- discouraging and and um, it was hard. It was hard, and I kept telling myself, "Imagine you're sitting next to Jesus in your car. How hard is this? Okay, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. It's not that inconvenient. It's not that troubling. It's not doesn't cost me that much money. I can do this." And, and when that person said that, it was like, God, thank you that I got, to have, I got to have one opportunity to be like Jesus in someone's life. Thank you. Because that's what happens when we walk in the light. We see ourselves. We repent. 
with godly sorrow. We don't hate ourselves. We just see ourselves and say, Lord, this is wrong. I, I got this. I need you in this. I'm confessing it to you. And I see, I see how much you hate this sin. I see how bad this is. Didn't seem that bad to me, but now I see how bad this is. And I'm moving on. And, the, and, and we change. And we become more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Corinthians, this example of people who, who, who loved you so much that even in their struggles and their problems, they made huge changes and huge choices to honor you. And they become an example to us of what it is to walk in the light, to have godly sorrow. Help us, Father, to be people who pursue you, who walk after you, follow you wherever you're going. Help us to see where you're going so that we can follow and give us the courage to make those right decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.